All right, you ready for the word this morning? All right. Uh, we are continuing today in our series on the letter to the Philippians. And I just really love this series. I hope you do too. I encourage you, if you've missed any of the previous messages, you can find them on our website at LancasterFirst.com under the media tab, all right? Now, as we near the end of chapter 1, uh, Paul began to talk about conducting ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ and about standing firm together right, in one spirit and in unity. And then as we began chapter 2, Paul continued on this theme of love and unity and began to show us exactly what that looks like. And, and it was really practical, if you remember. Philippians is a really practical book. It just works in real life. And uh, in the first couple of verses he says of chapter 2, he says that we should have tenderness and compassion. We should be like-minded and have the same love that Jesus has, and we should be one in spirit and one in purpose. And then last week, we looked at verses 3 to 8, and he continued to show us what this love and unity looks like. He says that if we're going to be the body of Christ that Jesus envisions, then we should avoid selfish ambition, we should avoid vain conceit and pride, um, and instead we should have humility, we must value others above ourselves, and we must act like Jesus acts. He says that in our relationships with each other, we should have the same mindset as Jesus. And then to illustrate all of this, to show us exactly what he's talking about in chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through chapter 2, verse 4, right? Um, he uses Jesus as an example for us to follow. All of this love and unity and tenderness and compassion and humility, he illustrates by saying, let me show you how Jesus did that in verses 6 to 8. You know, Jesus left the glories of heaven to come here to be born among us, to walk the same dusty roads that we walk, to, to teach us, to heal us, to put up with us, and then finally to die on the cross at our hands, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. And you know what? He could have stopped right there. I mean, that would have been enough, right? If he had stopped right there, that would have made his point, and, and we would, all, would have all gotten, okay? We need to act like Jesus act towards us, right? But he doesn't stop there. You know, I am so glad that he didn't stop there, right? Aren't you? Because he goes on for another three glorious verses, right? Verses 9 to 11. And these are some of the most majestic verses in all of Scripture. You know, and when you take these verses, verses 6 through 11, all together, as a whole, they form the greatest story of sacrifice leading to glory that you've ever heard before. I mean, some of, some of the best movies you've ever seen or some of the best novels you've, you've ever read, right, were, were stories of great sacrifice that led to glory, right? Well, all of those stories wish they could be this story, right? I mean, because this story has touched and changed millions and millions of lives into the billions of lives over the last 2,000 years. And so it's described here in these six verses. Now, some people think these six verses may have been a hymn that was commonly sung in the Christian church at the time that Paul used here and imported into the scriptures. And other people think, well, maybe this was um, original with Paul here. But either way, it's one of the most profound passages of scripture that you'll ever read. In this passage, we see the humbling of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus and the glorification of Jesus. And so as believers... We should always hold these things both at the same time. Jesus is the suffering servant and the reigning king. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world 
and he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a shepherd and a ruler. He's the son of man and the son of God. He's wonderful counselor and he's mighty God. The first time he came, he came to serve humbly and that's what he did. The second time that we see him, he's going to appear as a reigning king. All right, so let's read verses 9 to 11 together to get kind of a set. Well, as a matter of fact, let's back up and let's read all of verses 6 through 11 together and get a sense for the whole passage. Then we'll come back and unpack verses 9 to 11. And it says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you bow and pray with me over these verses? Heavenly Father, please give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in our lives. God, give us a humble heart that bows before you now. Give us a faith-filled heart that confesses you as our Lord now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. All right, so let's start at verse 9. All right, and it begins with the word, therefore. The idea is that since verses 6 to 8 are true, all right, since Jesus did, in fact, humble himself and left heaven, and since he did obey the Father, uh, even up to dying on the cross for humanity, since he did, in fact, successfully complete his mission as a suffering servant for a Messiah, Therefore, since all of those things are true, God the Father took some action. He responded in a certain way. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. You know, after Jesus on, died on the cross, he didn't stay dead. Right? The Bible says he rose again from the dead. And uh, it says in Ephesians that the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And all over the New Testament, you can see this idea repeated that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. On the day of Pentecost, Peter told the crowds that the risen Jesus had been exalted to the right hand of God and he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit that they were seeing being poured out right then. In Acts chapter 5, it says that the apostles were healing many people in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit in the Sanhedrin. Well, they were jealous. They didn't like that. And they didn't want them to speak in this name of Jesus any longer. But the apostles responded by saying that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And, verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of sins. Chapter 7, it says, as Stephen was about to be martyred, he looked up into heaven, and it says that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And he said, look, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that 
Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Then in Hebrews chapter 1, there's this beautiful passage in chapter 1, and it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful hand. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Later in chapter 8, he says that we have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 12, it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter says that Jesus has gone into the heavens and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. All through the New Testament, the apostles and the writers keep pressing this idea that Jesus is at the right hand of God. And the obvious conclusion is that if Jesus is at the right hand of God, at the throne of God, that he is ruling there with the Father. That's why the mob got so upset with Stephen when he said the Son of Man, Jesus, is at the right hand of the Father. He was saying that Jesus is now risen from the dead and is ruling there on the throne of God. It's why the Sanhedrin was so desperate to get the apostles to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus and stop saying that this, this Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father because the obvious conclusion is that Jesus is ruling there, that Jesus is God. And so going on, it says not only did the Father exalt Jesus to the high place, to the highest place, it says he gave him a name that is above every other name. He gave him a name that is above every other name. And this wasn't just some random name. It wasn't just any name. It's the personal name for God. It's saying that Jesus is Yahweh God. That is the name that is above every other name. Jesus is as much God as the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God. And the idea here is that Jesus exercises authority in his name from his position at the right hand of the Father. And again, we see this happening all through the book of Acts as well. Chapter 2, it was in the name of Jesus that sins were forgiven. Chapter 3, it says, Peter and John came across a man who was, who was lying there, and he was lame and crippled, and everybody knew it. And it says, Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And it says that he leapt to his feet and he began jumping and leaping and walking and praising God. And then it says that when the people were a little bit confused about, about how this happened and why this happened, Peter said, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see is now made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. 
In Samaria, Philip did many signs and miracles in the name of Jesus. In Acts 10, Peter preached in the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit fell on those who listened. Remember the Philippian church, the one that we're studying right now? You remember how that church came into being? Very shortly after Paul cast out a demon from a young girl in the name of Jesus? And not only that, it was so common that demons were being cast out of people in the name of Jesus that these seven guys, these seven brothers, sons of a guy named Sceva, got together and they used to try to go around and cast out demons. And they, and they saw so many people, be, demons, being cast out in the name of Jesus that they decided, you know what, let's try that. And so they came across this one guy who was possessed of a demon and they said, okay, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches about, come out of him. And this demon looked back at these guys and said, well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And with that, he jumped on them and gave them such a beating that they all ran running from the house, all beaten and bloodied. The name of Jesus is powerful. In Lydda, there was a paralyzed man named Aeneas. And in the name of Jesus, he was healed. And it says, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a woman whose name was Tabitha. And she died. But in the name of Jesus, Peter raised her from the dead. In Troas, there was a young man named Eutychus who fell out of a window while Paul was preaching and died. I encourage you, don't be hanging out the windows while I'm preaching, okay? But this man was sitting in the window. He fell asleep. And I encourage you, don't fall asleep while I'm preaching, okay? He fell asleep and he fell out of this window and died. But Paul ran down, began to pray for him in the name of Jesus, and he was raised to life again. And this is not all because, you know, the apostles possessed some type of supernatural power that they could just use whenever they wanted to or that they controlled. This was the risen Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God, exercising his authority from the throne of God. It's the gracious, risen Lord Jesus Christ who has a name that is above every other name who is lovingly and graciously giving gifts to people. He's exalted to the highest place at the right hand of the Father and has been given a name that is above every other name and he's exercising his authority there. But there's more. This gets even better. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Therefore, God's exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, one of the earliest creeds in the church was this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Would you say that with me? Jesus is Lord. One more time. Jesus is Lord. And by that, they meant that Jesus is God. Right? He's Lord and God, just like the Father described in the Old Testament is Lord and God. I mean, that's why the Sanhedrin were so desperate to get them to stop proclaiming in this name. Because from the very day of Pentecost, from the very first day of the church, Peter said, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. 
And, you know, from the very first of the Ten Commandments through the rest of the entire Bible, it says that you shall have no other gods beside me. You shall have no other lords beside me. You shall worship no other God, only the Lord. He's the only one, right? And now here are these people. They're healing people in the name of Jesus, who they claim is Lord and God and Messiah and sitting on the throne next to the Heavenly Father. And they're saying things like, every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and God and Messiah. Jesus is Lord. You know, for followers of Jesus, I mean, we know that Jesus is Lord, that he's sovereign, that everything is under his control. And yet, when we look around at the world around us, it doesn't always look like everything's under his control, right? Sometimes it looks, when we look at the world around us, it looks like it's a mess. And it looks like sin is ruling. It looks like evil people are often in power. Or it looks like things that are right and good are often mocked and ridiculed. It often looks like sin is more and more freely expressed and the devil's just having a field day, right? And, uh, and wreaking havoc among people and among families and, and society and, and wrecking lives. I mean, this doesn't look like the rulership of Jesus, right? Well, in Hebrews, it says it this way about Jesus. It says, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. That is, we look around and not everyone has bowed their knee to Jesus. Not everyone has confessed Jesus as Lord. Not everyone is being ruled by the rulership of Jesus and the kingdom of God in their heart. We don't see everything subject to him, but it goes on to say, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what we have right now, we call this Jesus' invisible kingdom. He's Lord and Master right now, ruling on his throne, and he does what he will, but his rulership is expressed in the hearts and in the lives of redeemed people. His rulership is expressed in you, in redeemed people. But the day is coming when Jesus' visible kingdom will be made manifest. Jesus said the day will come when, when Jesus, uh, well, that day will come when you see the Son of Man riding on the clouds of heaven. The angels said to the apostles who were looking up into the clouds when Jesus left, he said, men of Galilee, why are you staring up into the clouds? This same Jesus who was taken from you will return the same way that he left. In Revelation, it describes it like this. It says, I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. One day, Jesus' manifest kingdom is coming. And this is describing this time when it's set up. It's describing a time when the realities of heaven become the realities on earth. 
You know, Jesus rode the first time into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. But the second time, he's coming as a victorious king riding on a white horse. And from that time on, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the only question is, will you do it now? Joyfully or gladly? Or will you be forced by, by the sheer, against your will, by the sheer presence of Jesus, the sheer, the sheer presence of his voice, his eyes of fire and his voice of thunder, to bow your knee and confess Jesus as Lord. And let me show you how this happens, all right? In the next chapters, the end of Revelation chapter 21, it says this. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, our text here says that everyone will bow their knee to Jesus and everyone will proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And it says here that the great and the small will all be there, right? Important people will be there. Um, unimportant people will be there. People who try to rule the earth will be there, right? Pharaoh will be there. The Pharaoh who wouldn't submit to God, right? And came against Moses. Pharaoh will be there bowing the knee to Jesus. The great emperors of the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire, they'll be there bowing the knee to Jesus. Caesar will be there bowing the knee. Nero will be there. All the other Caesars will be there bowing their knees to Jesus. Every great despot, whoever tried to rule the world, will be there bowing their knees before Jesus, saying that Jesus is Lord. Stalin will be there. He will be on bended knee proclaiming Jesus is Lord. Hitler will be there bowing his knee to Jesus, saying that Jesus is Lord. Every person who whoever thought they were something great will be there bowing their knees proclaiming Jesus is Lord. Every skeptic, whoever railed against Jesus and the word of God will be there bowing their knees proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. In all, and every small person, every insignificant person whose name is not remembered in the history books will be there as well, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. All will be on bended knee. But for some, it will be too late. For those who don't willingly bow the knee in this life, who don't willingly confess Jesus as Lord in this life, it says... Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. But can I tell you, friends, that is not what God wants for you. That is not what God wants for anyone. The Bible says that, that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to be destroyed, but for all to come to repentance. 
He says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And look at the next verses in Revelation as God describes what this is like for the redeemed. For those who willingly bow the knee to Jesus and confess him now as Lord. Revelation 21 at verse 1 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's what God really wants for you. That's what God really desires for you. God would much rather receive you and be with you and wipe every tear from your eye and every sorrow from your heart and have you live with him forever and ever in a place where there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more hurt. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. 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 Well, before we conclude this service, I want to just give an opportunity for anyone who's here now or anyone who might be watching this service um, later online. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you've not yet bowed your heart to him, bowed your knee to him, confessed him as Lord, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. And I'm going to lead everybody in a prayer and ask everybody if you just follow me in this prayer. And uh, if you are ready to bow your knee to Jesus and to confess him as Lord, this is a prayer that will help you to do that. Would you all bow in prayer with me and follow me in this prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today and I confess I can't save myself. You're holy. And I'm sinful. I don't measure up to your standard. But I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus, I bow my heart. I bow my knee. I confess you as Lord. Be my Savior and help me live for you. 
walk in faith all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Friend, if you've done I, I can tell you with all the authority of the word of God that God's done everything that you've asked him to do. The old has been passed away. The new has come. Forgiveness of sins has come. And that's just a starting point. He wants us to walk in a relationship with him, a day-by-day relationship of faith. So I encourage all of us to get into the Word of God. If you've never read it before, start at the Gospel of Mark, and you'll be amazed at how God is speaking to you in ways you never thought were possible. Begin to pray every day, at least a few minutes, and then tell somebody what you've done if you just received Christ as your Savior. Let somebody know. Maybe go on our website and fill out a Connect card at LancasterFirst.com. Now, would you all just bow in prayer as we close this service? God, we just pause now to bow our hearts before you. Jesus, you are Lord of lords. You are King of kings. And you are seated at the right hand of the Father, and we confess you as Lord. God, we call you our Lord and our Savior and our Messiah and our Redeemer and our King. We bow before you. Now rule in our hearts every day, God. Express yourself through us, through our words, through our actions, through our thoughts, through our ideas. May your kingdom and your rulership be seen in us until the day it is manifested outwardly for all to see. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.